Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Nathaniel Borenstein about the history of MIME. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Welcome, Donald, and welcome, Nathaniel. So, Nathaniel, I think we'll start with you since you're the official guest today. So tell us how you got started in computers or uh, into uh, computer science and specifically how you got interested in the wild and wacky world of email. <laughs> okay. Well, um, uh, it started when I was in high school. My high school was, uh, was very advanced for the time. This was like 1974. And it got in my sophomore year a teletype connected to an actual computer on the other side of town so that we high school students could actually um, uh, type commands in at 110 baud and, and start to learn to program. Um, and I was just instantly captivated. I thought it was the most fascinating thing ever. Um, the, my masterpiece on that system, I wrote a, uh, a game, of course. Um, and because it had no graphics or sound or anything like that whatsoever, I decided it would be amusing to write a game of strip poker. Um, so it was an entirely text-based version of strip poker. Um, you, and it was so slow. It was awesome. It was, you are taking off your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you, I don't know how big the program was in kilobytes or anything like that, because all I know is how much paper tape it took to store it. And it was a, 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 a spool about five inches uh, circular. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that was about it until I went off to college. And in college, I, uh, I got involved in library automation. Again, just totally fascinated by this infinite possibility of what computers could do. I thought I just saw all these amazing things from the future. And then in my junior year, the college got a program that was called email. And uh, the head of the uh, computer center showed it to me. He was all excited about this cool email thing. And I looked at it. And I'm and still embarrassed to admit, um, I thought it was the most worthless thing I'd ever seen. Uh, because you have to understand, in those days, uh, we weren't on any networks, and all the computer terminals were in the same room. So this email program was the functional equivalent of uh, Post-it notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, this actually reminds me, I was at an ITF once, and I was sitting across from somebody in the terminal room and their laptop cover was actually touching my laptop cover. And I get an email from them that says, would you like to go to lunch? And I thought, <laughs> there's a very great use of email right there. <laughs> yeah, it's about the same. Yep. <laughs> so I sort of ignored email there. But um, then in uh, 1980, I went off to grad school at Carnegie Mellon, which did have a network. And so I was immediately uh, exposed to email because already everything was done by email at Carnegie Mellon. And they had this thing uh, called the Lieberman queue at Carnegie Mellon, where each grad student was assigned a sort of community service task to do for the department. And I was assigned to maintain the email program. So I, I didn't choose this. It just sort of got dumped on me. But I got more and more fascinated with it, and I ended up uh, rewriting it completely, moving it to Unix. It had been tops 10. Um, and uh, spent a good chunk of the next few years maintaining and extending this email system while working on my real work, um, which is, uh, was the uh, first uh, user interface thesis at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and then I, uh, I graduated, got my PhD, started interviewing for various faculty jobs, 
And uh, once I finished all that and was trying to decide, my advisor, uh, who was also the head of the Andrew Project, which was a, an IBM-funded project to build the computing environment of the future, said to me, well, you could do any of those things, or you could come with us and build the world's greatest email system just for a couple of years of your life. And uh, he also offered me more money than anybody else. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Before so the dot-com bubble burst. Oh, wait. <laughs> um, so I did, and I spent about four years building um, this email system, and it was, it was very cool. It, um, you could send around uh, not just plain ASCII text, which is all anybody else could send around at the time, but you could send around any language, and you could send around pictures and sounds and even video if you had a machine network that were up to it. Um, and, and all sorts of other things that we built uh, using our architecture. You could send around a piano. Um, you could send around various interactive objects. It was very cool. Um, and we were really the first, uh, the first site that enabled more than plain English text and email. And so people used to come by, we gave demo after demo. And uh, one day, um, person who came by for a demo uh, was a guy named Steve Jobs. And he looked at our system and uh, got it instantly. I'll say this for him. He's, he, he got things very fast. Um, and he immediately tried to hire my whole team. And nobody went. Uh, so he went back. Uh, this was uh, in the days when he was with Next Computer, between when he was with Apple and when he was with Apple. And so he went back to Next and put together a team to build Next Mail. Um, and when it came out, it was remarkably like Andrew Mail that I had built. Um, but uh, I figured... Imitation was the sincerest form of flattery, right? So, great. This, yeah, was, this, this is before you learned that you should get rich off of doing these things. Oh, I could have made so much money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would have had to work for Steve Jobs, which is another story. <laughs> when they built it, I, was, you know, I thought it was great, except that my users could send each other pictures and sounds and things, and his users could send each other pictures and sounds and things, but we couldn't interoperate there's no way my users could send his users pictures and sound because we had each just devised our own format. And so that got me started thinking about formats and standards and interoperability. Um, and at this point, I met a fellow named uh, Einar Stefferud, who I don't know if he's come up in your histories yet, but uh, he's one of the most underappreciated figures in the history of the internet. Um, he uh, started the first mailing list. Um, he used to be able to tell people his address was Steph at any machine on the ARPANET. And he was chairing a conference at which I, I presented a paper about Andrew. Uh, he started encouraging me um, to get involved at the ITF. And what happened was he brought together three different threads of need, um, which was what I think made mine such a quick success. There were people like me who wanted multimedia mail to interoperate. And there were people from all over the world who wanted multilingual mail to interoperate. And I, I should say something about multilingual mail. By this time, there were people sending mail in Japanese or French or Hebrew or whatever, but they did it with sort of national pseudo standards that didn't work basically outside their borders. So a, a person from Israel could type Hebrew mail in Israel, but if he came to a computer in America and he typed the same thing, it would come out gibberish. And that stuff was just not standardized. So there was the, the multimedia people, there was the multilingual people, and then there were the gateway people. And these were people who were working on gateway mail between different systems and trying not to lose information in the process. Um, and back then, this was way more important than it is now because ARPANET mail was not the only thing. Uh, in, by then, it was internet mail. 
Um, there was Usenet, there was Bitnet, there was CSNet, there was FidoNet, there was, you know, everything you could put net on the end of. Um, and they all worked a little differently. And um, when I was advocating for something like mine, I used to say no gateway ever improved a message that went through it. Uh, <laughs> much more often it hurt it. Actually, I later came to realize I was wrong because um, some messages are so worthless that if they're truncated, you've improved them. So there were ways <laughs> that did that. <laughs> Um, but uh, a fellow who was really concerned with those issues uh, was a guy named Ned Free. His company uh, at the time, Innisoft, what it did was gateways, and it was gatewaying uh, primarily between X400 and all the other real networks uh, that were in use at the time. And X400 had a sort of hypothetical framework for uh, multimedia mail, and he was worried about gatewaying it. So we got together, and this is really a good strategy for standards when it can work, I think, is... Uh, trying to find a bunch of interests that aren't the same, but that are mutually compatible. So, you know, we could have just come up with a way to send multimedia. We could have just come up with a way to send multilingual, or we could have just improved gateways. But by doing all three, um, we got a whole lot of people interested in and invested in the success uh, of what came to be uh, known as mine. Um, and by the way, probably with a little, little aside on the uh, name mine, um, we worked on this for about three years, which is remarkably fast for standard. Um, and near the end of it, when it was starting to look like this thing might actually succeed, um, I got the best advice of my career. A fellow who you know named Dave Crocker, I believe you interviewed him not long ago, yep. took me aside and said he had one piece of advice for me. He said, come up with a catchy name for it. And I, <laughs> I was like, right, I would do all this technical work. Why do we need a catchy name? He said, no, 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 really. You know, I'm best known as the author of RC22, and nobody knows what that is because it just doesn't trip off your tongue or anything like that. But if, if I had called it something snappy, um, I don't think he actually said he'd be making more money then, but I think that was sort of implied. He'd be uh, doing better in some regard. So I gave it maybe 15 minutes thought and came up with multi-purpose internet mail extensions. Um, and I, I really believe that was the most lucrative 15 minutes of my life. <laughs> <laughs> The value there was no arguments over that name? No, it was catchy. It was, it was like instant, instant. Um, and Steph used to always talk, I understand Steph, who I mentioned before, about the importance of a name. And it's because we in the tech industry deal with really complicated subjects. And if we can get a, a sort of simple name or, or, or meme, I guess, to hang a, a complex idea on, um, it goes a lot further. And so... You know, I could have talked about this whole framework I had for multimedia mail and blah, 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 but instead I could just say mine. And more important to my career, people said, oh, he's the author of mine. Um, so it was useful that way. And, and, and a, a measure of how um, useful it is uh, came up when we were talking about this interview when you suggested I talk about S-MIME. And S-MIME is the security standard for encrypted mail that's um, um, been moderately successful. And they named it S-MIME to mean secure mime. They started capitalizing on the name. And ever since then, everybody's assumed um, that I was the author of it, or at least that I knew a lot about it, <laughs> which is true. You know, I sort of have a vague idea how it works, but I get credit for it. I keep saying, no, 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 no. But it doesn't matter because I am associated with the four letters M-I-M-E. And even more dramatic, since 2010, I've been working for a company called MimeCast. And everybody assumes I founded this company or something like that. It was actually, I think, an eight-year-old company when I joined. 
Um, and the way I found it is I saw their name and, and was sort of mildly annoyed that they had taken my standard and turned it into the name of their company. But then when I investigated, I, I really liked the company. But the point is, having my name associated with this, this, uh, uh, this catchy name for an important thing um, did me more good than the important thing by itself could possibly have done. Um, so uh, that's, that's, I guess that was a long aside. But there was something else that was happening, um, and I guess and I'm not sure all the goals of the series, but um, in terms of how you make a standard succeed, um, I think might be of, of interest to your listeners. Um, uh, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. would be very interesting because that's one thing we do ask is, so, you know, what challenge did you face and, and how did you overcome them and get into the standards position? Sure. Well, when I um, finished up at Carnegie Mellon, um, it was after I'd done the Steve Jobs demo, but before they'd brought out Nextville. So I thought... And this was one of like 10 times in my career I thought, I'm done with email now. <laughs> this is before my, I've done it with email. Um, and I went off to be a researcher at uh, Bellcore, Bell Communications Research. But I had a couple of nagging interests in, uh, in email, in particular, in this thing called active messaging. Um, the idea there is you, uh, you have a programming language that you design for use in email. And it's designed so that I can send you a program as the body of the email and you can run it without any security problems. So it's all those restricted language. And I built two of those. And in testing them at Belcor, um, I, it was a very heterogeneous environment. And I modified like 15 different mail readers so that they could handle this, um, uh, this special language. So that when they saw something in this language, they would execute it instead of showing the user the program itself. Um, and so I had been doing that when, uh, when I came to realize that the standard was needed. Uh, because I'd, I'd seen next meal in action. And so we started work on the standard and the whole time we were working on it, I kept modifying the things I had done for active mail uh, to accommodate the new standard. And this turned into a program called meta mail. Um, and, and the way it worked was every mail reader was patched so that it checked for a content type header, which um, we basically invented back in the Andrew days. Um, and if it found one and didn't know what to do with it, it just passed the whole message on to this program called MetaMail. And MetaMail had a, a configuration file, it was called MailCap, that said, if you get this content type, run this program. Um, so you could configure it and extend it and so on. And that allowed me to, um, for every version of the MIME draft as we wrote it, before it was called MIME, I was able to modify the MetaMail program so that I had a working implementation of every version of the draft. And by the time the standards re was released, I got uh, permission from Belcore to make it open source. And so this was let loose on the world. So at the same time as um, the IETF approved an important standard for things that were you know, badly needed by some people, I let loose this really generic implementation that you could plug into any mail reader. And uh, this is when I knew it was successful because by the third day I had something like 30 patches for it, four day after the first release. And within a week, I, I just released a, a Linux version of this. I, yeah, it was Linux. Unix or Linux, I don't remember now. But within a week, I had patches to make it work on like five other versions of Unix and on DOS and on Macintosh and on Commodore Amiga. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this, this seems to be striking a nerve. Um, but that, that, that was sort of catching lightning in a bottle. But I do think that having a very generic open source implementation of a new standard is a good way to improve your odds of getting the standard accepted. A lot of people don't understand 
that getting a standard approved by a body like the IETF or any other is at most half the battle. There are lots of standards out there that, that just never take off. You know, so here's a standard for how to do this, but does anybody want to do this? Or is there a competing standard for another way to do this? So it becomes almost a marketing game, and, and there's not much better marketing than here's a generic free open source implementation of exactly what you want. Um, and that, that, that program was kind of interesting. I stopped supporting it about seven years later, I think, because I was tired and I wanted to see if anybody else would support it. <laughs> and they did for a while. But what mostly happened was people just took the code, you know, cut it up into little pieces and incorporated it into their, their other programs and then maintained it from there. So it was in America Online within, I think, eight months, but not as MetaMail, as pieces of MetaMail. So, you know, then I was done with email for a while. <laughs> for a while. And, then, and then you went to work for a company that stole the name of your... Anyway. <laughs> well, actually, there were steps in between. Um, uh, when the uh, internet bubble hit, well, when it started, not before it closed, uh, when the internet was open for commercialization, um, some, uh, some friends and I, including Einar Stafford, who I mentioned before, founded a company called First Virtual. And this was the first internet payment system. And I mentioned it because it did its payments entirely by email um, using a mind type design that we designed for payment. And uh, so I, I, I had, even though I said, okay, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to be an entrepreneur and do something cool with this new, uh, newly commercial internet. Turned out to be email again. Um, and uh, we, we, ran, we ran a nice little ride on that. Um, at one point, we calculated that if the current rate of growth kept up, everyone on the planet would have an account with us in five months. <laughs> and then of course, the, the bottom dropped out, the floor dropped out uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and, uh, we had done an IPO, and I was uh, silly enough to hold on to my stock thinking it would go up um, when, in fact, it lost 99.8% of its value. Um, <laughs> I'm still a working man. Um, but actually, we considered ourselves the winners because all our competitors went bankrupt, and we only lost 99.8% of our value. <laughs> we won. And then, um, then I thought I was done with the email for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I taught uh, mostly at the uh, University of Michigan, but some other schools too. And uh, then IBM hired me for its Lotus division to try to um, do various things to improve their, uh, their email systems. And I was back with it for about eight years before I finally went to Mimecast, where everybody assumed I started the company. So, yeah, I don't think I'm going to escape email at this point. <laughs> you're, kind of, you're kind of stuck with it for the rest of your life, apparently. <laughs> Any complaints? I mean, I love it. There's a number of things I love about it. Um, one of them, well, probably the biggest one, is just the asynchronicity. I mean, you and I, we, we had to plan for this event right now. We rescheduled several times because we had to both be talking at the same moment. But the engagement right. was easy because email is asynchronous, and you can do it from anywhere, and nobody particularly cares if you take a day to respond or anything like that. Um, and that's obviously useful for all, all sorts of purposes. It became particularly useful for me because um, back while I was working on the Andrew Project, my wife inherited a property in northern Michigan, um, which I had no interest in until I saw it and then fell in love with. And I sort of designed the rest of my career around being able to work from there. And uh, email made it much easier to work from a place where to this day, I can't get broadband. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so there you go. So 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 we have a guest on who doesn't have broadband. Well I do know now in our <laughs> No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm 
satellite internet is um, is very good for some things and just awful for others. Um, people don't know the world, but that's probably a whole other uh, recording for you. Well, no, I, no, I think that's true of a lot of technologies. Is that one of the problems we have in the computer world is that that we tend to try to make everything become the general solution for everything over time. We take every use case and we try to apply that. We try to apply that every use case potential to every new solution we come up with. And I think I see this all the time, uh, and not only in the ITF, but in the computer world in general. You know, you'll see a new product come out. Oh, SDN. Oh, look, we can solve every problem we've ever wanted to solve with SDN. Oh, I don't know, whatever it is, pick something else. Oh, yeah, we can solve every problem with that too. Oh, we can solve every. It's like, yeah, maybe we need to uh, solve one problem with everything, and then. Uh, <laughs> it's true, but there's also some interesting edge cases, um, and I'm particularly aware of these with satellites, since I use it almost every day. Um, you know, the problem with satellite, of course, is latency. They actually get, you know, like one and a half to two megabits um, upstream and ten downstream. So it's not too bad today for the actual. Bandwidth. The problem is the latency. My minimum ping time to anywhere on the planet is about two thirds of a second, um, which is a lot. <laughs> it is. So, but when you when you think about how that maps onto actual network services, it really varies. So, you want to watch a movie on Netflix? Given that Netflix did a reasonable job implementing things, or really they all do, um, it takes two thirds of a second longer to start up. That's it. Okay, otherwise it's just the same as it is for you. So it's just fine. Um, if you're talking about uh, Telnet or SSH, where you're typing characters one at a time, each one takes two-thirds of a second to echo. That's not so good. And then, you know, there's various things in between. And the most interesting case, the, the reason I mention this in response to what you said, is uh, web apps. Because how well web apps perform depends entirely on the model with which they were programmed, whether the person programming them ever thought about the possibility of a satellite internet connection. So the ones that, you know, download you what they need to run in JavaScript locally and so on, and they just run in a nice peppy manner there and then spit their answers back to the server, you barely notice that you're on a satellite, you know, two minutes of a second. Um, on the other hand, some toolkits are really chatty, and they'll say this to the server, and back to the server, and back and forth, and back and forth, and they're barely usable. And I can, I probably shouldn't name any company names, but I can pretty much tell when I go to a web page whether or not it was built by a certain company that <laughs> incredibly chatty architecture <laughs> 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 its web apps. It's like, oh, God, this is taking forever. It must be company X. <laughs> wow. And I'm sure the people there just never think about it. Um, and if you're, you know, the big lesson here to, I think, any network engineer is you should think about the range of situations in which your product's going to be deployed and try to test it in as many of them as you can. You know, I mean, if you're working for NASA, you're going to, you're not going to miss the fact that your space mission to Mars is going to need to depend on asynchronous apps, right? Because you're going to have ping times in the, in, in the hours at some point, um, but down here on Earth, people can get away without thinking that most of the time because the only people who suffer, in that example, are the rural folks who are so screwed anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, my, my, my pity, you live in the middle of nowhere, so, you know, you're not important type of thing. Well, is it more of just the fact that there's, it's 0.1% of the people I'm developing for compared to the city, right? Well, so where do I spend my time? 
first of all, I don't know whether point one is accurate. Okay, I was, I was, uh, uh, I was exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> um, and globally, it's considerably higher than that, I think. Um, and you know, I, I, I completely pardon it if you're a startup building some brand new service and you have really limited resources and all that. Okay, then sure, don't worry about that two percent, whatever that's on satellite. Um, but once you get to be a big company on the size of most of the companies that we deal with every day, you can afford to put an engineer on the question of how you perform on different na- networks, different uh, characteristics of networks. And some of them do, and some of them just don't. Like I said, I, I don't want to name names because somebody will listen to this from 10 years ago and it'll be 10 years from now and it'll be totally inaccurate anyway. So Yeah, right. So um, going back to, I mean, you you have a pretty simple story in the process you went through, but do you remember like were there any major challenges you hit that you felt like at this point I'm just going to give up, or was it like always? Because because it sounds like it went pretty fast. It went very fast for a standard, which does not mean there weren't difficult points. Um, one of the things that people sometimes say um, by way of criticism of mine is that it's really ugly. And my response to that is, yeah, <laughs> it's really ugly. <laughs> and there's a very good reason for that. Um, and the reason is we, were, we had a whole lot of constraints we were trying to satisfy. And we were living in the uh, aftermath, although people didn't realize necessarily that it was already the aftermath of X400, X400 being the OSI uh, models, um, passive replacing internet mail with real email. Um, and it failed in large part because of lack of compatibility. And so we were setting out to make sure that everything we did could go through today's, well, that day's today's mailer. Um, And that meant a lot of systems that were 7-bit only. Most systems would only let you have 80 or 120 characters to the line. A lot of systems put in white space at the beginning end or even the middle of a message as it went through. Um, And uh, things converted character sets, ASCII to EBCDIC. Do you remember EBCDIC? It was the IBM. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we wanted something that would um, uh, go through all of those. And I'm convinced still that that's a major reason it succeeded, is that it was able to work with the real world as it was at the time. But to make it work that way, we had to do some very ugly things. Um, one of them is every binary object that ever goes through mail, to this day pretty much, with a couple of exceptions, is encoded in base 64. And, you know, that's a nice way to, to add a third of your uh, payload, you know, just, just w- totally waste uh, uh, network bandwidth, right? It doesn't matter as much anymore, but at the time it seemed, seemed pretty bad. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that's something that was there entirely for this backwards compatibility. Another thing that uh, was perhaps the biggest controversy within the team of people that were doing mine was the question of how you uh, demarcate parts of multi-part messages. And if you've looked at a mine message, you know that the, uh, the headers uh, designate a boundary string, and then variants on that boundary string separate all the parts of the message. And that's really ugly to look at, but it works. And there was a camp of people who said, no, 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 we just go with line counts. We say the first 300 lines are a picture, and the next 200 lines are this or that. And that would have worked for about, well, at least three quarters of the mailers out there, but it wouldn't have worked for all of them because there were things that inserted lines or broke lines or so on, and then a line count would, would be worthless and everything would be corrupted. Um, so, so this whole um, boundary thing that we, we designed was specifically pr- 
protection against the nasty things that happen to messages in transit. And really the controversy there as we were drafting the standard was just how nasty are the things that happen and do we need to defend against all of them? That sort of thing. Or you know, if something only happens now and then, do we need to defend against it? And our answer was yes. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, that is that is an issue that um, you run into at some point is, you know, I, I do need to decide what are my trade-offs, right? And I think Donald was alluding to this a little bit earlier, talking about this a little bit earlier, is that, yeah, I mean, you're going to have certain places where you have to make a choice between efficiency and um, what, you know, cleanness of code and, and things like that. And at some point, I guess, you know, you have to decide which one do I fall down on? And in the case of mime, you fell down on the side of, we want to make it interoperable with everything possible, even though that's a little bit uglier. In other cases, it may make more sense to say it's just not going to work in some situations. You have to, there's some intuitive, like here it makes sense, there it doesn't make sense. I don't know, Donald, do you have any thoughts on that or Nathaniel? Well, I think a lot depends on how you expect it to reach deployment. So for example, um, we're doing this over the Zoom conferencing system. And when they sat down and built it, they had no intention of making it work with any previous conferencing systems. They were building one from scratch. And so they could go for efficiency and perhaps elegance and whatever they wanted. They didn't have to be constrained. Right. Email has been, I guess it, one, one can argue whether it still is, but it was the number one application of the internet for decades and decades. And certainly at the time we were doing this. And, um, you know, that more traffic was going to email than anything else back then. That's not true in the days of video. Um, and so compatibility with the installed base mattered a whole lot more. If it didn't matter, X400 might have won. And, you know, if, you're, if you have any doubts about that, think back to even earlier in the evolution of mail, um, which I think Dave Crocker talked about in his interview with you. Um, the first Internet mail was an extra command added on to FTP. Um, and guess what? It has never been completely designed since. Um, you know, it's still, if you look at it, the syntax is sort of like FTPs, you know, and it's sort of split off as another protocol that was like a variant of FTP, and it just keeps... You still, Hilo, you still have Hello, you still have, I mean, the whole thing is still, the way SMPP works is still very much FTP-like. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's evolution. Anybody who wanted to change that had to weigh the changes against how he would get everyone else on the internet to switch, right? And we didn't want to be in the business of saying, stop using mail and start using new mail, right? We wanted to be in the business of saying, your mail just got upgraded. Um, and that, that was very good for deployment. It was very bad for people looking and saying, oh, mine is beautiful. No one has ever said that. Not me. No one. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I think that comes back to the point of trade-offs and how often we face them in engineering and how intuitive the process is of deciding. Like, maybe if you're designing a rideshare app, rideshare doesn't really happen over satellite most of the time. So, because most places with satellite aren't going to have, you know, enough drivers who are willing to drive four hours to take you to the airport. So, maybe it's not so important to worry about it in that particular instance. But in other instances, a banking application, well, it may be that I'm sitting out in the middle of the wilds and I actually do need to uh, put some, deposit something in my checking account because I discover a check stuck in my wallet or something, you know? And so that's, that is um, 
there is a differential there, and I think it's important to think about that and figure out, you know, what what intuitively um, that makes sense for. Yeah, I think you're right on the money there. Rideshare rideshare has not taken off in rural areas at all. Although I still believe it could, um, I just believe it would have to be a somewhat different model. I mean, I was in San Francisco this last week, and whenever I wanted a rideshare, I think once I had to wait two whole minutes, you know, yeah. um, right. Whereas a rideshare that was designed for rural areas would sort of have to condition you to say, make sure to ask an hour in advance. Or the the day before or something like that, right? Yeah. You know, I need to actually plan in advance where I'm I'm going to the airport and think it through. But even that, it would still be really useful in a rural area. Um, My wife and I, you know, we live, like like I said, in the middle of nowhere. um, And we have two cars, but if we lent one out or it's in the shop or something, and one of us has to go to the airport, things get complicated. We're borrowing from friends or stuff like that. And we would love... We could say a week in advance, we're going to need a ride to the airport on this day. Um, and I find it hard to believe that couldn't be made economical, but it is a different service. And the service reflects its intended audience and environment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Donald, any questions that you have? So, so you spend a lot of time kind of dancing around the edges of what MIME is. Maybe we could dive into a little bit of what it buys you in email. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, what is this thing we've been talking about? Um, well, actually, um, there's, um, there's a couple of parts to mine, and they've seen um, acceptance in different places. So one part of mine um, is the uh, mail-safe encoding, the way to package everything up in such a way that it can get through all these god-awful mail gateways and things. And that was obviously useful only for mail, um, but that consists of base 64 and some... Uh, uh, the, the multi-part syntax and so on. The most important part of mine, though, and this was largely an accident, um, is the content type and content type registry. Because when we started out, we knew that we didn't know everything that people might ever want to put in email someday. We had knew some things. And so we came up with a few, but we set up an IANA registry with the IETF whereby people could register other content types. And the importance of this is if I send you a message and your mail reader doesn't recognize the content type, there's no way it can do the right thing. There's no way. Um, but if, and if there's no registry, I could call something X and someone else could call something X and they could be totally different. And so you get something that says it's content type X. Um, you have no idea what to do with it, even if you're you know, looking and thinking carefully, right? So I am a registry sort of as a traffic cop here that says, if the uh, content type is X, that means it's the standard such and such from so-and-so, and, and you can go off here for a specification and, and know what to do with it. Um, and that turned out to be um, probably the most uh, important part of mine, as I said. When we defined mine, I think there were 17 content types in the original, um, in the original RFC. Last I looked, there were about 1,300, um, which is, you know, nice growth. <laughs> um, and, they, you know, we, we were defining things like, you know, pictures and, and sound and so on. Um, they've gone on, uh, people have defined all sorts of complex applications. People have defined content types for smell. People have defined content types for um, uh, 3D reconstructed objects, right, with 3D printing. Um, and actually, it's kind of funny that when we were doing the MIME object, I wrote, um, as you probably know, the IETF has a tradition of April Fool's Day RFCs. And every April 1st, there's a few RFCs that come out that are tongue-in-cheek and say something ridiculous. And back then, 
I had another guy came out with an RFC um, that was the extension of mime content types to a new medium. And it was for matter transport. And the example we went into in some detail was uh, transporting Dan Quayle's brain um, over email. Um, and, you know, obviously it's an April Fool's Day RFC, right? But in fact, here we are in 2019, and there are actual standards for matter transport, basically. That's, that's what um, 3D printing is. You can send a physical gun through the mail, right? And have you a 3D printer printed, which is not my favorite application. Um, so, and, and the same with smell. You know, I talked about smell when I gave talks about mine as an example to give people an idea of the range of things that could be sent. Not that I thought anyone would ever want to send smells through the mail. And in fact, there's a standard now for sending smells around via mine. The other thing about this registry though, is that it went um, much further. Um, as we were working on the, finishing up the mine thing, hadn't really been finalized as a standard, but it was people began to talk about it. I got a call from a guy uh, in Geneva um, who said he'd heard about this mine thing we were working on for email and he was wondering if it would work for the web. To which my response was, what's the web? Because this was the first I'd ever heard of it. Um, we're talking like 92. Um, and it turns out that, um, you know, the World Wide Web does not use email safe content encodings because it's got a nice binary transport channel, but it uses the same content types um, that mine does because why reinvent the wheel? Um, and other things that used it too. I think some versions of, I don't know if it still does, but some versions of Microsoft's operating systems have attached uh, MIME types to each file. Um, that sort of stuff, uh, it, it, it got to Gopher, got backwards compatibility and all sorts of other things. So the, the most lasting part of mine, I'm pretty sure, is this notion of a registry of content types, which doesn't sound like rocket science, but we did it in the process of trying to build something useful. It turned out to be the most useful part. So now that you've looked back on this, what would you do differently? I'm trying not to give too glib an answer. Um, the, 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 problem, <laughs> the problem in our industry with, with that question about anything, looking backwards, what would you do differently? It's pretty much always the same answer, I think. I'd get rich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what I could have done, right? I mean, if, if you look back even five years, knowing what you know now, um, you could probably go off and build something amazing, right? So that, that's the glib answer, but it's true. You know, I would have, um, I would have done things just, just ever so slightly differently, and I, I'm, I'm sure I could have done very well by it. Um, in terms of uh, the technical things, as ugly as it is, there's not much that I can imagine wanting to change because it was all done for a, a good reason. Um, it was also, I should mention this, because it's really important to talking about um, standards and network standards in particular, when people hear that I'm the author of mine, they sometimes, especially non-technical people, tend to assume it was some brilliant technical achievement, okay? Which it was not. It was absolutely not. Um, it was not the first time people sent pictures through the mail. I had built a system that sent pictures through the mail before, as I said, and I wasn't the first, okay? It wasn't a, a brilliant technical accomplishment. What it was, if I may say so myself, was a brilliant political accomplishment because we didn't invent sending pictures through the mail, but we got over a hundred opinionated email geeks to agree to do it the same way. Um, and that was, so that was, um, that was a real achievement in my mind was, was, was getting people to buy it. And by the way, I have a tip on how to do that. Um, I found fairly early on, um, you know, I, I had draft RFC after draft RFC. And in the back, I had a section of um, uh, uh, acknowledgements, people I thanked for their help. And I found that 
if somebody was being difficult, saying, you know, we should do X, Y, and Z when, you know, X, Y, and Z were all, to my mind, hopeless, non-starters, and they were being difficult about it. If I could find some little bit of it, you know, X prime, subprime, that was reasonable, I would work it into the RFC and then add their name to the acknowledgments. Ah, uh, yes. And once their names were the acknowledgments, all but one of them became like instantly much easier to deal with. Yeah, yeah. There's a saying in the IETF I hear all the time, it's amazing how much work can get done if nobody cares who gets the credit. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and the flip side is if you share the credit, right? Yeah, if you share the credit, yeah. It wasn't anonymous. And, you know, my name and Ned's name were at the top of the RFC. We got the most credit. But a lot of people could say, yeah, I helped with mine. You know, and great, they did. You know, <laughs> in some cases, it was just because they finally shut up. But they didn't help. <laughs> hey, Donald, you going to try this for FR routing? <laughs> I do actually try that approach. I don't know if I'm successful at it, but I try to do that. <laughs> I think it's that. Give out praise and uh, as much as possible. Yeah. Well, it's a human activity. People think, especially non-techies, think this stuff is all just a bunch of um, uh, people with pocket protectors going into a room and being inhumanly comp- computational. And in fact, it's a bunch of real people interacting on a project. And it's, the, the, the human part of it is as real as any completely non-technical project. Um, because, you know, the people who go to ATF meetings, once you get past, you know, certain things about the way they talk, maybe, they're just human beings like everybody else. And they have a job and they want to keep their job and they want to be able to get their next job and they want recognition for something so that they can say, this is on my resume or I did this or I did that because it comes back to, I still have to feed my family and live in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and, uh, um, I, I've always been entertained also by the people who don't get that, um, you know, because most, let's face it, most standards organizations don't work the way the ITF works. Most standards organizations, a corporation that's big enough can come in and be very bullying and say, this is how we're going to do it. And if they can make an agreement with one or two other big corporations, it's all done. And I don't know if you were around then, but when Microsoft first developed, d- discovered, I don't want to say developed, discovered the internet, the first IETF that they took that seriously, they sent like 40 or 50 people. And it was clear that their goal was to just overrun everything and have it happen. There. And the IETF like rejected them like, like its immune system couldn't tolerate them. It had antibodies to that sort of thing. It was kind of yeah. under- And to its credit, IBM, uh, IBM, Microsoft quickly learned that wasn't the way to do it. They became good citizens of the IETF. Um, this is my other interaction with Steve Jobs in this process, actually. When we were winding up, the uh, mind development, it was getting you know, close to the uh, actual standards track RFC, I got a call from Steve Jobs. And actually, this is my wife's claim to fame. I was out in the woods cutting firewood when he called. <laughs> she put him on hold for 10 minutes while she got me. So that's her claim to fame. She had Steve Jobs on hold for 10 minutes. But he, I cried, like yeah, he tried to – the only right word I – mean, I think very highly of Steve Jobs in many, many regards, and, and one shouldn't speak it on the dead either. But he basically tried to bully me into dumping all the other stuff we'd done with character sets, which was fairly complicated and ugly, because it was mine, um, in favor of just using Unicode for everything. Well, using Unicode for everything is exactly the way you would design it from scratch. Okay? But you can't tell everybody in the world, replace what you've got with something that does only Unicode. You know, that's just never going to happen. Um, especially since there were so many other things being done out there, the Japanese model, the Russian model, was all different. And so, you know, I heard him out and I was polite and I tried to explain to him why it wasn't going to work. Um, apparently that was how Nextmail worked. It was, uh, it was all Unicode. 
but uh, I think he was frustrated that he, he the the techniques that often worked so well for him at Apple, i.e., telling people what they were going to do, <laughs> did not work in a standards context. Yeah, well, and it's not going to, and and thankfully so sometimes. Now there are negative sides to that as well, right? That the standards bodies, ITF can. I saw an article recently by a prominent blogger talking about he used to think the ITF did this and he realized it's just really a big political thing or whatever. And that is true to some degree, but it's there for a reason. Like you have to have the antibodies in place in order to stop a company from coming and taking over. And those antibodies can work against doing things quickly, which is, hey, I mean, I, it, there's trade-offs. <laughs> and that slowness is, you know, the Achilles heel. And it's a lot of other th- a lot a lot of other things to succeed that I think are are regrettable. I, I think I will name a company here because it's talked about so much now that I won't be the four thousandth person to say bad things about it. If you look at Facebook, which has this dominant social networking system, they completely control all aspects of the system. They give some APIs to people who want to do some third party things, but basically they run the show, and that means they make a lot of money, but it also means um, that they make decisions that control sort of the, the political communications environment for the world to a certain degree. Um, and people, a lot of people, especially non-techies, think, well, that's, that's how something like Facebook has to be. But it isn't. And there have been some efforts to do it otherwise. But with a, with a successful open standard for social networking, you can have all the information sharing that you have on Facebook today, but you could choose which provider you stored your data with and it could have different policies about the trade-off of how that service was paid for. So maybe you actually paid money and had tremendous privacy, or maybe you tolerated lots of advertisements, or maybe you tolerated having a data sold, and, and you'd be able to pick your own place on the spectrum and control with a more fine-grained what access people had to it. Um, that would be possible in the presence of an open standard by which different companies could attack the problem different ways. Um, it's not what we got, obviously. Yeah, right. And even if you'd started to build that at the same time as Zuckerberg was building Facebook, you'd have been sitting in the ITF in meetings for four years while he was taking over the world. Yep, exactly. Yep. You know, which leads me to my biggest um, piece of pessimism. And I'll say something that is just slightly overgeneralized, I think, which is that until the internet was commercialized in 1994, every service, every user-facing service at least, was built on open protocols. And since then, none have been. It was like this, this, we hit this wall. You can find a few small exceptions and the less visible services, maybe more, um, but the corroding power of uh, desire to get rich is just unmistakable. Yeah. And by the way, if we had the open source approach to uh, social networking, instead of one billionaire, it's not like people would make money, we'd have a whole bunch of millionaires. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. So it's interesting you say that because I think the one counter example of that right now is Quick, um, which is being standardized. And I think overall that's that's probably a good thing. And now I'm not certain about the HTTP3 or the whatever the most current, I think it's HTTP3 and the integration of Quick into HTTP3. And various people have different opinions about that situation. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there is an exception that proves, whereas with network protocols, you have a good bit of competition between open source and non-open source, and people are still developing new networking protocols, sometimes almost too much. 
I do think it's worse with, worse with user-facing things because um, marketing and publicity play such a big role, and the non-open version can get a multi-year head start. Right. By the way, you just mentioned you know, HTTP3 and such. I think new versions of already open protocols um, don't really count in what I was saying before. Okay, yeah. You know, the, HTTP, yeah. the web was arguably the last that came in open, and now it's still being extended open. Um, yeah. Well, I guess that's true of Quick as well to some degree because it's UDP with TCP-like semantics sitting on top of UDP. So it's not really um, a totally new transport protocol. It's actually building on prior work to a large degree. Yeah. To a large extent, that's what the IETF does nowadays. Yeah. Ending stuff that's already done. I, mean, I don't want to overgeneralize, like I say, but um, if you have a really radically new idea, um, you have a choice. You can start generating a political consensus in the IETF over the course of years, or you can get some VCs and see if you can make a billion dollars, which sounds more exciting. I'm not sure everyone thinks about it that way, though, right? They have an idea, they go do it. And not necessarily it's something they want to go talk to everyone else about, right? So, Yeah. But when they go about it that way, and that's a sort of introvert's approach almost, um, once they get to a certain point and they're interacting with the rest of the world, they still have that same choice of two paths to go, right? If the, if the guy who beats down their door and talks to them first is a venture capitalist, they're going to go down a very different path than if uh, somebody – gives them an all-expenses-paid trip to the IETF and wines and dines them and tells them how wonderful open standards are. Um, I mean, it's just two really different courses open to people with clever ideas. And how do you, you know, you take some, some clever student nowadays, some, you know, just coming out of college or grad school or whatever, how do you say to them, no, 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 you don't want to make billions of dollars. <laughs> you want to spend years in the IETF. It's a hard sell. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Thanks, Nathaniel, for coming on. And uh, maybe we'll have you back on the regular show for something, or if you have any other ideas for historical stuff, uh, we can arrange that as well. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Do you blog, or is it just uh, social media, or is there anything well, I, like that? I blog occasionally. I, um, I took a year and a half hiatus from social media, but I'm back on now very sparingly. But I am, as I said before, basically an email guy. <laughs> And people are welcome to send me email. Um, it's nsb at guppylake.com. But also my name, Nathaniel Borenstein, you know, unlike uh, John Smith, um, it's really easy to find me. Uh, you type in my name, I'm the only Nathaniel Borenstein on the net. You get to my webpage, you see all my email addresses. Um, the book I'm, I'm, I'm finishing writing right now, um, when I wrote the uh, about the author section, I decided to just give it a a couple sentences and then say, if you want to know anything else, just Google my name, see chapter 25 of the death of privacy. Oh, interesting. What book are you writing? I'd like to know about it. So that, I mean, listeners might want to know about it as well. Sure. Well, um, I know I told you a little about it before I've changed the title. Um, uh, the title is uh, virtual virtue, seeking wisdom, building bridges, seeking, sorry, seeking wisdom and building bridges in the internet age. Okay. About how um, how the modern information technology that we are all living with nowadays affects the human spiritual path, which sounds um, well. I don't feel qualified to write the book, but I'm not sure anybody is. And yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing. We talked about this before. Kind of what I'm working on my dissertation around as well. And I'm finding very, very few people who are addressing this in a real way um, or 
in, in a way that addresses spirituality as well as just privacy, right? There's privacy out there, but there's very little about the human spirit and stuff like that in this realm. So that's really cool. Well, one of, one of the things, I'll just give a little sneak preview then. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my take on it is that IT has introduced so many issues that are relevant to the spiritual quest that people just barely even notice. You know, the world has changed so totally that they barely even notice how many small parts there are. Um, you, know, you know, the most obvious is the difference between spending a quiet day meditating and walking in the woods or spending the day staring at a screen and typing, right? I mean, the, the, the whole mindset that puts you into. Um, but the, um, the real goal of this book, as it evolved, is based on the observation that um, religions have very similar ethical systems, despite all their um, differences in theology and practice and myth and so on. Um, you, won't, you won't find very many religions out there that advocate murder or, or kitty porn or sort of things, right? Um, but when you try to do interface dialogue, and I've, I've been involved with a lot of this, my, my college advisor, is, uh, that's his life, it's tricky. If you set a Muslim and a Christian in a room and say, why don't you guys try to figure out whether or not Jesus was divine? Okay, they're not going to get very far. Okay, they've got enough preconceptions that that's not a constructive argument. But if you tell them, um, why don't you see if you can reach agreement on the, on the right way to handle intellectual property um, on the internet? Um, well, they don't, you know, Muhammad didn't talk about that. <laughs> Jesus never preached about that. And so they're, they're less in danger of, uh, of conflicting with their existing uh, beliefs. So it's, it's an opportunity for interfaith dialogue to be more productive. And I personally believe that once you have more productive interfaith dialogue going on, you're going to have less war. Um, so that, that may yet prove to be one of the greatest gifts of the internet, is that it gave us all these problems that people had to work together to solve. Interesting, yeah. So, Donald, where can people find you? I know me not you sharp on Twitter. Did I get that right? That's right. See, I'll remember it eventually. <laughs> and is that it? You're still That's not it. blogging? No, I don't blog. Don't blog. I code. You code. My blog well, is my code. I was going to say you could just publish your code on a blog and call it a blog. <laughs> Done with it. That's okay. Um, you can find Donald on GitHub. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. That's, that's where you find Donald is on GitHub. All right. And uh, I'm Russ White. I'm at rule11.tech. And you can find me at the Network Collective. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of The History of Networking. And thanks, Nathaniel, for coming on. This has been a terrific, terrific show. And we'll catch you on the next one.